0: The following is part of the teaching ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel in Barrie, Ontario. We believe firmly in proclaiming the Word of God without apology. For more information about our church, visit our website at harvestberry.ca or email us at info at We trust that this message will challenge and transform you. You know, there's a common um, word uh, to describe uh, the person in each household who provides for that household. Do you know what that word is? The breadwinner, correct, uh, the breadwinner. And um, they win or earn the bread, which is kind of a, the most staple thing in life. Uh, they bring home, if, in essence, what the family needs uh, to survive. They are the, they're the breadwinner. And in today's text, we're going to be in um, Exodus 12 and 13, which seems like small stuff next to last, you know, beside last week and seven chapters. So we can get through two chapters in no time at all. Um, in Exodus 12 and 13, God provides the Hebrews with what they need as they set out on this journey from Egypt into the unknown. They didn't know exactly where they were going, this a promised land that had been given to them, but they hadn't been there for 430 years. And, um, and so they're setting out on this journey, and they could, they could legitimately be concerned about how they would provide for themselves as they set out on this journey, because they were leaving behind their livelihoods and really the whole life that they had built there in Egypt. But right from the start, God made it abundantly clear that He was going to be their breadwinner, that He was going to be their provider that they would have no concerns whatsoever for what they would live on as they made this epic journey. He provided everything they needed. And I would just wonder if we ever think about God in those exact terms, if we think about God as the breadwinner in our lives, for our families, if we ever think about him as being the one who provides us with what we need. Not not what we wish we had, not what we want, not all the extras, but, but the needs that we have so that there's never a concern that we will ever go without. Do you see God... In that way, that's really what we're going to see in the text uh, today. God provides everything. I want you to all be uh, very assured of that. God provides us everything that we need. So that's what's in front of us. Why don't we pray together and uh, seek the Lord's favor on this time in his word this morning. Our God and Father, we, uh, we come to you thanking you again um, that we can get together in this way and Father, I'm thinking back to Abraham who knew you as Jehovah Jireh, uh, the God who provides. And God, it's so easy for us to forget that you are no less interested in providing for us today. And Father, we have much to be grateful for. We know that. And I pray that you would show us again in your word how you do indeed provide for us every step of the way. Convince us of these truths, convict our hearts. Father, show us the things in our hearts, in our minds, and in our actions that need to change today. Father, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You agree with that prayer? Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, You have no reason for concern. God provides all you really need, and we have to start right here. You need to be saved from death. You need to be saved from death, and, and God provides that. I mean, I'm not sure if you realize it, but this actually, of all the needs that you have, this actually is the most pressing need that every human being has to be saved from death. It transcends, of all the other needs that we could list, this transcends every other need. I am in peril of death, and I need to be rescued from that. And in Egypt, God provided a way in the face of the looming death of the firstborns. Uh, in our last message, we saw all of these signs that God was doing, and we saw 10 of the signs actually, uh, the first early one, and then 9 of what, what are called the plagues generally, and then we're coming up to plague number 10 or sign number 11 that God is doing, and this is the death of the firstborn in Egypt. This is the one that's going to push Pharaoh and Egypt over the edge, and allow the exodus to actually uh, begin. And Israel, no less than Egypt, was facing this imminent judgment. That when the destroyer would come, everybody in the land was under the threat of the destroyer. But God provided a way for the Jews. Let's look at it in the text, in fact. Exodus 12. We're going to run through all the verses. Kind of tell it. Then we're going to go back and my out some things that are important for us to see. Uh, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. He's establishing the Hebrew calendar here and telling them when the new year is. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb, and he's going to give three criteria now for the lamb that they're going to pick. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, and a year old. So a young, unblemished, male lamb is going to be taken. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts of the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night Roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head uh, with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until morning, you shall burn. No leftovers, right? That's what he's saying, no leftovers. We're portioning this outright, one per family, two families if it's a larger lamb or smaller families, but we're going to make sure there's no leftovers. If there are, they're going to be burned. In this manner, you shall eat it. With your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. Something's coming, so we're eating it on the run. We're eating it in such a manner that we're ready to go in a moment's notice. This is eat eat quickly because we've got to get out the door. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Verse 14, and this day shall be for you a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord through your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. He goes on to give more uh, instructions uh, through the next few verses. God establishes the Passover as this memorial feast that they're to keep. So every generation remembers exactly what he did to save his people. The people did exactly what God told them to do. Verse 21, Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them. So this was what we just read was the instructions from the Lord to Moses and Aaron. Now Moses and Aaron are going to the elders. The elders are going to go to the heads of tribes. The tribes uh, leaders are going to go to all the heads of clans and and families. And everyone's going to find out about this beginning at verse 21. Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans. Kill the Passover lamb. And he gives all the instructions uh, to them. And the people are eager to obey the Lord, knowing his power and what he's already done in the land of Egypt. Verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and your sons forever, He goes on to say in verse 26, when your kids ask you about this, why are we uh, celebrating this? You're going to tell them why and tell them the story and rehearse it generation after generation. You shall say, verse 27, it's a sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. for He passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped him. That's an awesome thing that the Lord did there. After all the build up and, and everything that we've already seen through Exodus and all of the signs that God has done and the way he had devastated the Egyptian people, it then comes down to this in verses 29 and 30. This is the kind of climactic moment of the story. And yet it's said in such a kind of a brief matter-of-fact kind of way. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and it was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house, not a family, not a household. There was no one who didn't experience where someone was dead. That's it. It's all he says. And then verse 31 kind of ends it. And it begins the actual exodus. Then he, that is Pharaoh, summoned Moses and Aaron. Remember he said we're not going to see each other anymore. And this word summoned really just means he sent word. He sent word to Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds, as you have said, and be gone. And then in some kind of indication that he finally got it in some way, knowing that his own nation was completely devastated, he says to Moses, and bless me also. Just send a little blessing my way. Things are really bad here in Egypt. I don't know if you know it tries to invoke some blessing back, and it seems that there's some repentance in his heart, and yet we'll find out later that he changes his mind again. A death that devastated the Egyptian people and passed over the Jews. God provided the way for them to be saved. The Jews in Egypt faced physical death as a result of the destroyer, Remember that phrase back in verse 23, the destroyer, earlier in the chapter, it's really clear that it's the Lord. God's the destroyer. I don't know how comfortable you are with that, but it's God who's executing judgment here. God's the one who decides, actually, the day of death of every one of us. So I don't know why we would be so surprised here that he's the one who's executing the judgment. He's the one going house to house. He's the one who sees the blood on the doorposts and lintels and passes over. Now what's important for us to glean from all of this? uh, Five things, we're gonna put these up on the screen for you. First, the physical death of the firstborns is a metaphor for the spiritual death that awaits us all. Uh, The whole thing about the Exodus and the Passover, it's all a picture of the salvation that, that we have through Jesus Christ. It's a metaphor for our own condition and the means by which God intends to save us. But the physical death of the firstborns, it's a metaphor for the spiritual death that awaits us all. The Egyptians faced something that caused extreme grief in their land. No doubt about it. Just as As physical death for us, the loss of loved ones causes extreme grief for us. It's painful, and it's universal in that we all experience it. But the greater tragedy is not physical death. The greater tragedy is spiritual death, or what John calls in the book of Revelation, four times he uses the phrase, second death. It's second death because we face physical death, but after our physical death, we become, if we're not in Christ, we become condemned to a Christless eternity, eternally separated from God. That's the second death. Far more devastating than physical death in every a single way. The greater tragedy is this second death, spiritual death, that we're all facing. Now, the Passover, secondly, look at this. The Passover is a picture of what Jesus did to provide a way of salvation to the world. The Jews were required, uh, we saw in the text, to slay the Passover lamb, and I think we have an image here, to slay the Passover lamb, and then to take a hyssop branch, it was just an herb that grew commonly in the uh, Middle East, and to make kind of a brush out of that, and to dip the hyssop brush into the blood, and to paint the doorposts, and paint the lintel over the door, and by that to create this, This this, uh, symbolic act of actual faith. I mean, The Jews had to believe the word of Moses to actually go ahead and do this because they had never done anything like this before. It seemed kind of interesting that you would do such a thing. There were very specific instructions about the kind of lamb they were to use and the way they were to eat the meal and how it was supposed to be prepared, who was supposed to be in the room, And then to take the blood and put it all over the door like that, I mean, you would have to believe that God was doing something in order to go through all of that and actually execute it. And so it isn't so much the blood on the doorpost that saves them in as much as it was their faith to believe that just obeying the word of God was sufficient. This is an act of faith in the Lord. And it was prophetic in every way of what Jesus would do for us. Jesus, in fact, is the final Passover lamb. He secured our safety not from a destroyer who would take our physical life, but from one who would require our very lives, would condemn us to a Christless eternity. Paul lays it out pretty clearly in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, where he just simply says that Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is the final fulfillment of the exodus, of the Passover, of moving from life, from death into life. And Jesus, of course, fit all the criteria for the lamb. He was young. He died uh, early in life. He was male, and he was perfect and unblemished in every way, without defect, a deliverer who could give his life for us because his was without sin. A deliverer, a savior who could pay the price for your sin and mine because he was perfect and without blemish. Physical death, a metaphor for spiritual death, Passover, a picture of Uh, The way of salvation, Jesus provided, and then thirdly this. uh, The Passover and Exodus picture our exit from sin, slavery, and death to freedom and life. Uh, The removal, uh, we didn't really touch on it too much, but if you um, uh, look back into chapter 12... Verse 15, seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. Leaven, or yeast as we would know it, um, was a symbol of sin. God wanted them ready to go. And so one of the things he required of them is that their bread not be leavened. That would take time in order to let the bread rise before you baked it. Um, that would just take time and they needed to be ready to go. And so all of the yeast uh, was swept out of the house and no yeast was used in the bread so that the bread would just be mixed and prepared and, and, and baked right away. And yeast became this symbol for sin. And God means by the blood of Christ to sweep away all sin out of our lives. that in the ending of Egyptian slavery for the Jews, it really pictures our movement from sinner to saint. I mean, I don't know if you think about this, but God actually requires you to be perfect, to be in relationship with him. God requires you to be perfect, to relate to him. Now, I, I understand the objection. Some of you are thinking it right now. Well, then we're all out. And I understand that. But it's no less true just because we find it hard to believe. You cannot have undealt with sin in your life and have a relationship with the Lord. All of your sin needs to be dealt with and in the right and biblical way. I remember when I was first saved, um, shortly after, within a few years, I was working in a... Uh, Christian bookstore. And uh, we sold all this. Uh, well, we actually had the, um, you know, in the cash register, would have departments that you had to press for things. This is old school, I know. You just have to press department buttons after you keyed in the number, so that you could track the inventory. And uh, the inventory for some of the stuff we sold was called holy hardware. Um, other places would call it Jesus junk, right? And it's all that stuff just with like, verses on it or pictures on it. It's like mugs and, and pens and T-shirts and all that kind of stuff. And, and bumper stickers were really popular and when I first came to Christ. And there was this one that, I, that we sold, and it, it said, um, I'm not perfect, just finish it. Just forgiven, right? And, and it's, it's, at the time, I thought that was really cool uh, because I certainly wasn't perfect, but I was forgiven. But I just I realized uh, that that's kind of bad theology, on its face, you see, in order for me to be forgiven by the Lord, it also means that I'm perfect in the sight of the Lord. That perfection is required for me, as I said, to relate to my God. We have to be fully justified before the Lord. We have to be declared Righteous. We must be fully righteous to stand before a holy God who cannot look on sin. The Passover pictures this, the Exodus pictures this. Our exit, we are no longer enslaved to sin. We are no longer under the condemnation of death. We now experience freedom from sin. We now experience life in the Lord and are no longer under the condemnation of the second death if we're in Christ. Now, all of that said, this is the the reality check part of that. The fourth point would be this though we are free from sin and slavery, like the Israelites, there's yet a journey ahead of us to the promised land. We are not there yet. Christ fulfilled in a greater way the goal of the Passover. And we, like Israel, continue our wilderness wanderings, if you will, in anticipation of getting to the promised land, getting to the place where the reality of our lives catches up to how God sees us as perfect. Because of the blood of Christ. We're still still wrestling with sin. We're still wrestling with sin. How many people are still wrestling with sin in their lives, right? Right? And those who didn't raise their hand? Sin of pride. Still wrestling with sin. I don't raise my hand in church. Not for anybody. I mean, that's still our struggle. We're still struggling to believe at times. I still have doubts. I'm still wondering about this. How do I, how, how do I, how do I all make all of this make sense? That's still the experience of many believers, if not all of us. I'm still figuring things out about God and about myself and how it all fits together. I still have times when I'm, when I'm really wrestling down things with God. I still have sin issues that I'm still trying to deal with. I, I'm not there yet. I know God sees me this way. But I'm not there yet. God sees me as a saint. The Catholics have this wrong. Okay? The Catholics have this very wrong where sainthood is bestowed, bestowed on those who do something miraculous. Miraculous. You have to do something in order to become a saint in Catholicism. Whereas the scriptures teach that you become a saint not because of something you did, but because of something Jesus did. And every person here who trusts Christ as Lord and Savior, who confesses their sin, is declared to be a saint. And then we continue to live our lives working out our salvation with fear and trembling, seeking to be more and more like Jesus every day. And the Exodus and the Passover picture all of this for us. And that's really where the bumper sticker actually makes a little bit sense. This is the, this is the not perfect part, and I get it. I get what the bumper sticker means. We all get it. Five, for Christ followers, uh, the Passover memorial was replaced by the Lord's table. And Jesus said that this was to be, or the scriptures tell us here, that this was to be a memorial forever. And the memorial continues. The Passover memorial continues. But it continues in the Lord's table for those who are part of the church. The Lord's table stands as a picture of what Jesus did for us, of our unity in Christ. That's why we always take it together. In the New Testament, the Last Supper, the night in which Jesus was betrayed, when he gathered with his disciples in that upper room, I mean, that that was the Passover meal that they were celebrating. It was the Passover. Jesus had instruction that preparations be made for the Passover. And they were celebrating that very meal together. And the cup that they shared, the bread that they shared was unleavened bread without sin, symbolic of being without sin. The cup that they shared was the third cup of four in the Passover meal. It's the cup of redemption appropriately. It all makes sense. The message is the same, though the observance itself has changed. No longer the Passover meal, but now the Lord's Supper. We too are to remember, we too are to teach our children these things and make sure they know all that God has done to redeem us, to provide for us a way to life, a way out of second death. Now, before we move on to the final three needs, we've spent a lot of time on this first one and of necessity because it packs such a punch for us. It's so important. But it's important for us to know that this is the only one of the four that we're going to talk about today that's absolutely essential. That all of the other ways that God provides for us, in fact, in time, will no longer be provided to us. That when we talk about God providing our basic needs, there will come a time when we will no longer have a need for those basic needs, and we will pass from this life. That when we talk about the need for us to grow in our faith, that that won't actually be necessary at some point, because we will pass from this life to the next, and our faith will no longer be required, because our faith will be made sight. There will come a time, God provides help to us in so many ways, these are the next three points that we're going to look at, God provides help in so many ways, but at At the end of our lives, we no longer need that help because we will be perfected and glorified and in the very presence of our God, seeing him in all of his glory. And so it really comes down to this first one. This is the most important. This is the one that's eternal. This is the one that decides your destiny. And I really want to challenge you before we move on any further that if you have not made the decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, if you are still in your sin, if you are still in darkness, if you are still in Egypt, to use the metaphor, then now is the time to make that decision. Now is the time, right now, not at the end of the service, not this week when you've had some more time to think about it, right now is the time in the midst of the preaching of God's word to say, I admit that I'm a sinner in need of a savior. I admit that I'm under the condemnation of death and are facing a Christless eternity. I believe that the Lord Jesus Christ gave His life for me as the Passover Lamb, that His blood is what cleanses me from my sin, and only the perfect Savior could do that. And I commit my life now to follow Jesus Christ, to exit. Egypt, and to go on the journey to become like my Savior, Jesus Christ. You can do that right now, right in this moment. Now let's move on and see these other things that God provides for us by His grace. You need the basics of life, and He provides that. To you and I'm talking about if we could make a list of basics of life. What are the things that I actually need? Okay, let's start at the very top of the list: oxygen. That makes sense, correct? We all need oxygen, so we need that. We need water; can't live without water. We need food of some kind. So we've got three things on the list. We need um, shelter slash clothing. Let's put that all in one category, and um, maybe we could add relationship. It's not good that the man should be alone. So we have, we have, what, five things on our list, and that's it. Really, when it comes down to it, we've got a lot of extra things on our list of things that we think are the basics, but really when it comes down to it, these are the basics, correct? That, that's, that's really all we would ever need. Now, in, ch- in chapter 12, verse 33, something kind of crazy happens here. The Jews are readying themselves uh, to leave. Just imagine this scene In fact, let me just read it. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste for they said, we shall all be dead. They finally got the message after all the signs. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. They were ready to go, remember. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. So just imagine this, the night before the Passover happens, that earlier that day, they're getting ready for their Passover meal. And during the preparations, they, they leave their houses for a few minutes. And they go over to their Egyptian neighbor's house. And they knock on the door. And, um, hey, hi, how are you doing? Good, good. I just came over to let you know that as things go down tonight, it's not going to be great. But if you wouldn't mind, uh, we're going to take all that you own. So if you could bring out all of your jewelry, all of your gold and silver, everything that you own. If you could have that all just ready for us. Because after your firstborn dies, we're going to come back and get that stuff. Is that not the way the text reads? They went over and they asked for it. They just went and asked for it. That's why I tell you, this sounds a little bit, a little bit crazy. But when it all happens, and verse 36 says, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. They just let them. Thus, they plundered the Egyptians. I mean, the the whole thing goes down, and as the Israelites are getting ready to go, their neighbors are coming out and just pushing all of this stuff into their, here, take it, just go, take everything I own, and go. At the end of the day, this is kind of a very clear indication that Yahweh had won. He had won the day that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in fact, now the God of Moses had won. These these Jews had been poor. They were slaves. They didn't have a lot saved up. They had no means of supporting themselves as they went out into the journey. How would they fund that? Where would they buy food? How would they find the supplies uh, to build tents and to build uh, shelters and enclosures for animals? How would they do all of that? God provided what they needed from the Egyptians. Again, verse 36, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now, plundering, as I think about plundering, I think about Vikings. I think about pirates. Pirates plunder. I think about invading armies. Invading armies plunder. But the Jews are none of those things. They're not Vikings, they're not pirates, and they haven't invaded anywhere. They're just leaving a place. I imagine that if the Canadian military ever invaded a country and went in and were going to plunder the country, that this is exactly the way we would do it. We would knock on people's doors and we would politely ask, could you please just give me all your stuff? And then once we took it all, because we're Canadian, we would say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry that I have to do this and take all of this. It really is a ridiculous scene. It was a true miracle in every way of God's provision. It's so ridiculous. And again, they would use this money and goods to fund the journey and to build the tabernacle. Now, I don't think this is going to work out exactly the same way for you. So that if you feel like God is not providing for you, that this is the way he's going to provide for you, that you would just go over to your neighbor and knock on the door and say, hey, by the way, we're a little short this month. Would you mind if I had some of your stuff to sell? Or could you give me your visa card or empty your bank account for me? I, I just don't think it's gonna work out precisely the same way for you. But you have no need to worry because God will provide for you. And we don't do this often, but turn over to Matthew chapter six. Always prefer to just preach the passage that's right in front of us, but in terms of what Jesus says here in Matthew six, I think it just helps us from a New Testament point of view all these years later from the Exodus to just put it all in perspective. Jesus says this, Matthew 6, uh, 25. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Therefore, do not be anxious, uh, saying, uh, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all of these things will be added to you. All of the basics of life, they'll come your way. Now, our challenge is we want more than what God offers our problem is that we have a basic discontent with what God has given to us. We've moved the stakes with regard to what constitutes the basics of life. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Timothy 6.8, but if we have food and clothing, with these we'll be content. Okay, the followers of Christ, if we have something to eat and something to wear and a place to live, that's enough. That ought to be enough for us. But we think we deserve a certain standard of living. Tomorrow morning, I hope you're all going out, all of those who are 18 and up, I hope you're all going out and voting. If you haven't already done it, I hope you go in and vote. One of the things that's really clear to me as I listen to all of the major parties speak is that they're constantly targeting the middle class. And I think our church is pretty representative of the middle class. Here's what they know. Those in the lower socioeconomic categories don't vote. For the most part, they don't vote. Those in the upper Uh, socioeconomic categories, Uh, they vote, but they constitute a very small voting block. And so the, the bulk of the voters, the people they need to appeal to are the middle class. And so I can't even tell you how many election ads I saw, I'm sure you saw them too, that were appealing directly to the middle class and telling us that we deserve more than what we're currently getting. I get the argument. The challenge is that as Christ followers, if this is our principle, that we should be content with the basics, as Christ followers, we've actually bought into what the prevailing culture is telling us. We've bought into what the politicians are telling us. We believe we deserve more than what we're actually currently getting. And I've been thinking about it this way that no matter what happens tomorrow night, whether it's Mr. Harper or Mr. Trudeau or Mr. Mulcair or by some crazy stroke of I don't even know what, Ms. May becomes prime minister. If that happens, even if Ms. May became the prime minister of Canada tomorrow night, we would still have far more than the basics of life to enjoy. That the world would not cave in the sky would not fall. We have so, so much. And we've strayed so far from what the word of God tells us about what we should be content with. I guess the question is, if all you had was shelter, not, not the really big house, not the nice place in the suburbs, but I mean, if all you had was shelter, would that be okay? Okay. If all you had was clothing, not the, not the latest fashions. Not a, not a full closet full, but just clothing to wear. little confession time oh, for me. Um, a little peek into the vanity of your pastor. Um, but I sometimes think about the fact that I have to make sure I haven't worn the same shirt one weekend that I wore the last weekend. All right? So that kind of makes sense. So I go down and I did this last night. And um, I go down, and this is another purpose for uh, the sermon videos on our website, is I'm able to go back and see what I wore the last three, four weeks. And so yeah, I determined last night that I hadn't worn this shirt yet to preach on a weekend, so I was able to wear it. And in case you're wondering if I wear the same one on Saturday night as Sunday, I do, because I know some of you are probably just as vain as I am and watching for these things. And, and so I just, I just think about how vain I am and how many shirts I need. How, I, how, how much clothes is in my closet and the next time that, that I see a sale I'm going to buy something else I'm not the only one in the room if you have food to eat not, not necessarily the finest cuts of steak but if you have food all the, all the more expensive organic stuff just food I got food I'm happy with that. Would you be content with with what God assures you he will provide for you? Could you be content with less? I just recently came to hear about a man named Viv Grigg who runs a ministry. He's a New Zealander. He uh, runs a ministry that sends people on temporary mission assignments into the Poorest, to the poorest of the poor in the world's major cities, in the uh, darkest, uh, dirtiest, and most desperate of slums. They, they go and they do something that most missionaries don't do. Most missionaries will go into a new country and they'll live on a missions compound. They'll live in the safety of where other missionaries live and they'll go out from that compound to do ministry. But Viv Grigg and his uh, ministry, they actually go and live in the slums. They live with the people in close proximity with all of the hardships that come with living in the slums. I'm pretty impressed by what he's doing. Uh, something he said uh, struck me about how we handle uh, what we've been given. He's speaking to us now who are not living in the slums. These five points that I thought were really great. Earn much. If you have the capability to make money, make as much of it as you can. Earn much. But consume little. Stop being so excessive. Hoard nothing. It all belongs to the Lord. I'm willing to give any of it up. Give generously. And as a result, I think if you got all of those straight, then number five comes naturally. Celebrate life. Just celebrate life. And I I like that a lot. What you and I need are really just the basics, and God has given us that. All right, here's another need. You need to grow in your faith, and he provides that. God had a few ways of growing the faith of his people. Uh, Clearly seeing the signs that he had performed in Egypt was a way that he grew the faith of his people, and that's why they uh, did the whole doorpost and the lintel thing with the blood. It's because they uh, believed to a certain level. But signs are never enough, Miracles are never enough to get people to believe. So God instituted the Passover feast for them to keep doing repeatedly uh, throughout their history. The last part of chapter 12 speaks about the institution of the Passover again. And then the first part of chapter 13 talks about the dedication of the firstborns because everyone knows that firstborns are very, very special. Hooray for firstborns, right? Come on! (laughs) Shout it out, firstborns. Everyone else hates me. So these two observances, the Passover and and then the the dedication of the firstborns, become two observances that were meant to be regular faith-strengthening rituals that they would perform in Israel A reminder of what God was doing and had done, the same way that we would have some of these things in our life. We talk about worship, walk, work for a disciple of Christ. We want you to be in a weekend service. We want you to be in a small group. We want you to find a place of serving. And just by virtue of doing those things on a regular basis and being part of all of that, that ought to be faith strengthening It's part of our discipleship. And God set it all up that way for us before we get to the key thing though we need to see in this passage let's understand what we really mean by faith that God wants to build our faith I love this definition we've been using it for years Uh, but faith is believing the word of God and acting upon it no matter how I feel knowing that God promises a good result now you could see that play out in the exodus big time faith is believing the word of God Moses said we need to put a blood on the doorpost and the lintel of our home, and acting upon it. So we did. No matter how we feel, I feel afraid. I feel like it might be unnecessary. No matter how I feel, I'm going to act upon the objective word of God that Moses delivered to us, knowing that God promises a good result. uh, Our firstborn's not going to die. We're going to get out of Egypt, and we're going to go to the promised land. The promises of God all stacked up for them. And you see how that definition just works with regard to the Jews. It works for us every time. That's the definition of faith. That's the thing that God wants to increase in your life. And so you get that when you look at verse 17 of of chapter 13. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, though that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. Now I find some, some things very intriguing about that. Let's look at this map that we have. And so there's a traditional uh, route of the Exodus is this red line. And and honestly, there's like four or five different theories about the route of how the uh, Jews left. Over on the left, Egypt, Goshen is where they lived. And they went up to Sukkoth, up a little bit north, and they came down and in, into the Sinai, But if you look at the top of the map, hugging the Mediterranean Sea, there's a road there called the Way to the Land of the Philistines. It goes up to Gaza and Ashdod, and that was the area where the Philistines lived, and they were a warrior people. But it is literally the fastest way to Canaan from Egypt. That's the the 401 route. Okay, we're going to go the fast way, that's the way. But God knew they weren't ready for that. And what's really intriguing about all of this is God fought the entire battle in Egypt, correct? He fought the whole thing. The Jews actually did nothing. Every one of the signs was God doing it. The eventual destruction of the Egyptian army, which we're going to see next time, um, that's God doing that. But now, God isn't going to fight the battle directly for them anymore. He's going to be involved. He's going to be with them. He's going to strengthen them for it. He's going to give them wisdom, but from now on, they're going to have, actually have to fight the battles. They're going to have to be an army and trust him. God isn't just going to wipe out the Philistines and let them walk into the country. They weren't ready for that. Their faith wasn't yet strong enough for that. What he did to the Egyptians was one-off. A very unique event in history. The taking of Canaan was going to be very different, more hands-on. And the not-quite-yet-an-army army of Israel, they would play a big part in the taking of the land, but they weren't there yet. In the wilderness, their faith would be refined. They would hear teaching from Moses. They would receive commands from the Lord to obey. They would get some of it right and some of it wrong, as we'll see. Coming up. And all the way, God is preparing them, strengthening them for the task of taking the land. Now, there's no doubt that sometimes God does a miracle in our lives to remove a certain circumstance or to heal us of something that's going on. God sometimes does the miracle. But in my experience, it's rare. And that what God really wants to build in us is our faith. He wants us to endure. He's not going to fight the battle in the same way. He's not going to take away the trials, the very things that are designed to actually build our faith. Most of the time, He's going to give you what you need to get through it, and He's not going to remove you from it. It may take time, but if you let him do his perfect work, you'll come out the other side with some pretty great things. Endurance, trust in him, faith to believe all of his promises, no matter what the circumstances are. And as you pray and seek him in worship and sometimes with tears, I can tell you how often I've preached a word to people or looked at people through worship and knowing their circumstances and see tears streaming down their faces as they wrestle down the circumstances of their life with the Lord. It's actually a pretty awesome thing to see. This is the way God works. He told us in James 1, 2, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds, brothers, because you know, you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And all of that with the objective of making us perfect in Christ. And finally this, you need help. You need help along the way. And he provides that. Last few verses here, chapter, uh, chapter 13, verse 20. They moved on some succoth and camped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. That they might travel by day and by night. And the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire at night did not, did not depart from the people. The cloud represented three things. The cloud and fire represented three things that the Lord provided them. Uh, Direction. Protection in comfort. And they, like us, they, they had no idea where they were going. We, don't, we have no idea where we're going. But we know we're going to heaven. We know we're, going, we're bound for glory. We got that part of it. But God knows the exact destination. God knows the route that we're going to take. And God knows how long we're going to be on this journey before we reach the destination. And it's different for every single person in the room. I think one of the hardest things for us to accept as the followers of Christ is that some people become followers of Christ, and it seems like their life is relatively easy, that God's blessing just flows into their life, that, 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 that they make enough money, that they, they've got a great family, that their marriage stays together, that their kids all love Jesus, that, that, that they're healthy throughout their life, and they be, live these uh, long, happy lives in, in blessing and security. We all know people like that, that that's been the course of their life. And, and, And they love Jesus and it's wonderful. And then there's other people, they accept Jesus and it's like their entire life is just freakishly hard. And it's one trial after another and they just get out of something and then the life comes crashing in again and there's just some people where every step of the journey is difficult. They're in the valley of the shadow of death and when they step out of it, they're in the next valley of the shadow of death and they never get to the mountaintop. I don't know if that's you. I'll acknowledge that's hard. On your behalf? God promises to provide help along the way for all of us. No matter the path, as was true for Israel, the Lord went before them, the Lord goes before you. The pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire in a more figurative sense now, they're there for you. Directing your path, protecting you along the way providing you comfort when you need it. At any point when the children of Israel were struggling with what was going on, with leaving behind more than four centuries, all they had ever known, whenever they were doubting or fearful, they would just look up at night and see that blazing fire and know that their God was with them. They would look up in the day and see that cloud leading the way. they would know that their God was with them. And I want to tell you, loved ones, every one of you who are followers of Christ, I want to tell you that your God is with you. No matter the circumstances of your life, your God is with you. He's directing you. He's protecting you in ways that you don't even realize. And he's there to provide you comfort in all of your heartaches and sorrows. And I love that about our God, that he's willing to to do all of that for us you can trust him fully he is your help along the way he provides help every step of the way all of that to say you have no reason for concern because God provides all that you really need amen let me pray for us Our God and Father, I would pray for those, first of all, who are in the room, who are still under the condemnation of death, still dwelling in Egypt, God, that they would see in the Word of God today what you have provided for them as a means of escaping spiritual death or second death. And God, that they would become followers of Christ on this day. Father, I pray for all of us that we would be content with what you've provided for us, that we would see you as the one who builds our faith and provides help along the way and gives us all of the basics of life that we need. And and God, if we've been ungrateful, then we would say thank you now. And we would see it as part of our journey to become more Christ-like, that we would become more content with what we have. Father, thank you for all of the ways that you pour yourself out into our lives Thank you, Father, for this church where we can encourage and bless one another. And when we're weak, Father, we can lift one another up. So God, help us to do that more and more for one another as the Spirit does his deep work in each of our lives. We thank you for the clarity of your word today. We thank you that you took the time to speak to us, to lovingly show us the way along in this journey. Father, all of these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Thanks so much for listening. We always love hearing about the work God's doing in our listeners. If God's been doing a work in you, send us an email at info at harvestberry.ca and remember, you are loved.